0: Now, for this morning, we're coming to the end of a series we've been doing on the Lord's Prayer. Because one of our core convictions is that one of the things we need, um, if you're going to be a healthy Christian, healthy church, you need sound doctrine, there's things you need to know, you need to be renewed and refreshed by the Holy Spirit, and then you need to live faithfully. Um, And the primary way you'll keep your heart refreshed and stay emotionally healthy And spiritually vital or spiritually alive is through prayer and praise, worship and prayer. And the two gifts that the Lord gives us, the primary gifts to help us stay renewed and refreshed by the Holy Spirit is the Lord's prayer. It gives us a framework for how to pray. And then we have the book of Psalms which actually puts clothes in essence on that framework for, and it gives us prayers for every season, every age, every stage. And so we're unpacking the Lord's prayer and we're doing that also as a church. Cause two things we want to do. The first part of the Lord's prayer gives us our commitments God-centered commitments. We're committed, committed to honoring his name and worship. We're committed to um, uh, expanding and bringing in his kingdom with our work. We're committed to doing his will faithfully as his faithful servants. And then the second half shapes the type of culture that Jesus wants for his family and his people. A culture where they um, are generously dependent. They say, give us this day our daily bread. A culture where they're regularly repentant where they know that they have been forgiven and then they extend forgiveness. And then this last line we're going to look at this morning is, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. So it's a type of people who have learned how to fight for their delight. They fight for their delight. So the Lord's Prayer, it's such a gift to us because it really, it's a masterpiece because in such a small little, uh, in a small compact way, it gives you resources for every situation you'll experience. So you're going to have needs. So what do you do with those needs? You run to him and say, give us this day. You're going to have faults. You're going to have failures. You're going to have to deal with guilt, with shame. So how do you deal with that? You run to him in repentance. Forgive us our debts. And then this morning we're going to talk about, all right, how do you deal with the reality that life is a battle? You're, You're in a struggle. The struggle is real. I was uh, actually over at Kathy's house the other day with things she had been making for all of the different pregnant mamas. There's these little onesies that say the snuggle is real. And uh, we know the the struggle. where, Where does the struggle come from? You know, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. You have temptations, which are kind of these external things that prey on internal realities. There's this internal battle. Where temptations are trying to bring something out of you, they're trying to fan the flame of your own flaws. It's a battle, and then you have an evil one. There's there's evil that's external to us as well. So how do we deal? How do we fight? The Lord's prayer gives us a strategy for fighting well. How do you fight these things? One of the most interesting biographies that I read a couple years ago was on a. Um, a military man by the name of John Boyd. And it's interesting because he was he's been described by some as one of the uh other than Sun Tzu, the greatest military strategist in history. Which is kind of amazing because most people I'd never even heard of this. Person, And uh, he began his military career as a fighter pilot in the Korean War. Um, He never lost a dogfight in all of his military career. Then he trained pilots and he never in his entire career lost a training simulation. He got the nickname. He was called 42nd Boyd because it said it only took him 40 seconds to shoot you down. And uh, when he was 33, he wrote this uh, paper called Aerial Attack Study, which codified the best dogfighting tactics uh, for the first time and became known as the Bible of air combat and revolutionized the methods that every air force in the world uh, uses. He developed this energy maneuverability theory that uh, helped design the F-15, F-16, and the A-10, which the one writer I was reading said the F-15 is the greatest... uh, greatest uh, technological invention in humanity. Now, that's an overstatement, but still kind of impressive. So probably his most significant contribution to military strategy came through these series of briefings uh, that he gave where he laid out his way of thinking uh, about aerial combat. He, he popularized this thing he called the OODA loop. So there's an image. Uh, Luke, bring up that first one. All right, so this is his uh, OODA loop. So what he taught the, the pilots is you, you go through this cycle. And the first is observe and then orient, decide, and act. So you're constantly observing your situations. You orient yourself to it. You make a decision. You act. Then you reobserve, You reorient. And what he says is the people who could go through the, in essence, the pilots who could go through the OODA loop the fastest would be the pilots who were victorious. So, so you're plunged into the fog of war where you're surrounded by chaos and ambiguity And it's the ones who can cycle through this the fastest that actually will survive and will be victorious on the battlefield. And it's interesting how that kind of thinking has permeated through so many different uh, things. Like Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, and is this mega startup kind of venture capitalist always ask all the companies he's trying to um, have explode in Silicon Valley, you know, what's your OODA loop? How do you go through these things? And as I was reading, I was wondering, all right. so this is a really probably helpful framework for aerial combat, but I wonder, is there a similar type of framework for those of us who will never be fighting in F-18 Hornets, but just fighting spiritual battle? Like, is there a similar spiritual OODA loop you can walk through? And actually, what I want to look at this morning is Psalm 28, because what I'm going to present to you, and you can bring up the next one, uh, Luke, that Psalm 28 provides us with our own type of OODA loop. Of course, not quite, I don't know, C-N-D-H, I don't know, daha or something, not quite have the same ring to it, but the same type of kind of loop that can help us learn to fight temptations well and be delivered from the evil one. And this actually uh, comes from David Pallison, who um, is a brilliant, wonderful uh, counselor um, who went home to be the, with, with the Lord this summer, but it's just wonderful um, books he's written. And he talks about an experience um, in 2003 when at the time his 16-year-old daughter all of a sudden came down with these very bizarre and strange health complications. And for the next three years, they can never quite pinpoint exactly what it, what it was, but for three years they spent um, from when she 16 to 19 continually in hospital rooms, having tests run on, run, run on her um, in the ICU, not knowing if she was going to survive. And what he says, Psalm 28 laid out this map. So it's almost like it gathered up our experience, it took us by the hand, and then it walked us down this path of hope. It gave us a framework for how we could fight the unique temptations that we found ourselves in. So turn to Psalm 28. And this is one of the many places. The beauty of the Psalms is in every psalm, there's an intersection between God's truth and our experience, where human need and God's strength intersect. And every psalm gives us one of those intersections. And this is such a beautiful psalm because it gives us, when we're in the middle of a, the fog of war, the fog of spiritual war, it gives us both words and then it gives us ways, things to do. It gives us the phrases we need and it tells us about the phases we're going through. Phrases and phases to help us. You know, the word, these, it's a lamp unto our feet, and a light into our path, especially when the path is dark or when the path is unknown. So as we look through this, one of the keys, though, is that this is a, it's a template, not a, a timetable, and there'll be seasons that are there's a long time in between. But really, the goal is to kind of work into your heart the habits of walking through this process. So let's look at the first step. So four stages to really uh, learn to fight temptation is first stage. In stage one and two, you have to cry out to him for help. So here, verse 1 and 2 in chapter 28 of Psalms 28. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. I mean, do you feel the energy? Do you feel the cries? The first step is you cry out to him to help. There's two keys that you see here, his utter need and his great vulnerability. His need and vulnerability. See, this is not like a garden variety, you know, say your prayers, go through your routine, just add this to your to-do, to-do list. It's not like, you know, these four things. All right, I've tried to help, check. I've done this, check. Now I've done this, check, where you can just kind of cycle through. It begins with this desperate cry for help. That's where it begins. You cry out. And really one of the greatest gifts God can give us are things that remind us of how much we need him to make us, make us desperate, make us needy, make us vulnerable. You hear it to you, O Lord, I cry, my rock, don't be deaf to me, hear me, you have to listen, please, if you are silent, then I'll be like those who go into the pit, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy, I cry to you to help when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. You know, a couple of images he uses. Notice what he calls God. He knows that God is his rock. You're my rock. And that image has two kind of connotations. When you read it in the Bible, one, it's a rock of stability, strength, um, permanence, reliability. But also think about the rock in Exodus 17, where they were in the wilderness and they had no water, and Moses strikes the rock, and out of the water the water flows. So it's not just stability, it's also supplies. It's not just reliability it also revives so he's our rock and he knows that but he's crying out to him be those things I need you to be who you said you were going to be you're going to be our rock and you're going to be you're going to provide for us and then notice what he says I don't want to be like those who have gone down to the pit you know this place of helplessness fallen into this pit this hole where i'm crying out and nobody can come think about like joseph when his brother sold him to slavery first they threw him into the pit to leave him for dead and i've fallen in this place where if you don't come help me then i have no help no hope but then notice that last thing he says i lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary He's looking in his mind's eye. He's looking to the most holy sanctuary, the inner part. It's the place where the the Ark of the Covenant dwelled and the the Holy of Holies, the innermost place. And uh, that's where he's going. This is where my mind goes. Somehow there's something there that's going to be my hope. Love what Spurgeon says about this verse. He says, all right, why does he say these things first? We stretch out empty hands because we know we're beggars. We lift them up to heaven because we know that's the only place our help can come from. And we look to the most holy place or the mercy seat because all our hope is found there. So that's his first step. You cry out, you cry for help. But then notice what he does in verse three through five. David then he names his enemies, he names the trouble, he names the temptation. Do not drag me off with the wicked. "...with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their heart. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands, render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord, of the works of His hands, He will tear them down and build them up no more." So here David is wrestling with very specific evils. Now remember, his unique place, uh, he's, he's the king, he's, he's the judge, he's, responsi- he's, he's responsible for justice in the kingdom. And there's something going on here where he's facing godless people who, uh, you can see what they're doing. Um, in verse 3, they speak peace with their neighbor, but in their heart, in their hearts, there's evil. So there's some type of political, he's in the midst of uh, some type of political machinations where people are deceiving and trying to stab one another in the back. And that's his, his unique situation. But if you're going to learn to fight well, you have to learn how to name the unique situation or temptation um, you're in. Hey, go ahead and bring that, uh, Luke, go ahead and bring that back up. So can... you have to learn how to name the situation. So there's an enemy that's always seeking to blind and confuse you. And one of the most powerful things we have to do is learn how to name those things. When David Pallison and his daughter was in the when she was in the hospital, he said, I had to kind of this had to take me by the hand and help me. What are the unique temptations here? Am I going to be tempted to insist on her healing? Am I going to be tempted to demand our our own comfort, to demand service? Am I going to be gripped by our own fears? Am I going to place my deepest hopes in the doctors? Am I going to become obsessive? Am I going to become angry? Am I just going to emotionally check out to try and guard myself from feeling this pain? You have to learn how to name your enemies. So the whole key to this section is being able to name the actual temptations you face. You will not be able to fight what you can't see. And often, until you name it, you can't really see it. We, several months ago, when we were going through Ephesians, did a series on spiritual warfare and the seven deadly sins. And it was so helpful for me personally because it just kind of gave me categories. These are the names of the temptations and the sins that we're going to face. And then if you think about it, almost like an aerial pilot, they can have, they can be attacked from so many different angles. And you think about what are all the different angles that temptations can come at us? What are the ways you can be attacked you know, there's temptations for every age and every stage of life. There's unique temptations because of where you live. There's unique temptations because of the family you grew up in. There'll be unique temptations because of your occupation. I mean, just think about every age and stage. Every age, every stage of life has its unique joys and challenges, and there's unique temptations. One of my favorite stories about uh, our girl's Aunt Jo, who's my little sister. She's a you know, many, many of you got to know Aunt Jo last year. She was kind of in a gap year between graduating college and starting graduate school. So she came down here to uh, kind of help us get the church off the ground and take care to help take care of our, our kids while we were doing that. So she was a staple in our, our nursery and other things. And one of my favorite stories about Aunt Jo is she... Um, so she's about 16 years younger than I am, and so uh, when I was in college, and we, we had a real kind of unique, special relationship, and uh, so one day I was in college, and I called home, and uh, my mom was like, you, you give, you know, I'm going to give the phone to Joe, because she's had a rough day, and she was in kindergarten at this time, so she's had a hard day, so okay, hand her phone, I'll cheer her up. And so we get on the, all right, Joe, how's it going? You know, what's going on? What are you doing? And she says, well, I'm about to get into a bubble bath to escape the stressors of my day. <laughs> like, you're in kindergarten. First of all, who talks like this? Uh, and then, like, what kind of stressors have you had in your day? And so, well, that's terrible tell me about it as well today was supposed to be fun friday but i don't remember the boys like tyler and trevor they ruined it and so we didn't get to have fun friday man i mean let's learn the lesson boys ruin everything (laughs) let's hold on to that lesson don't you forget And then there was a couple other things that happened that just didn't go right at school, and there was a snafu at the pickup, and then she came home and her her two other siblings, the mean ones, were (laughs) they were washing the car and she was like, I wanted to wash the car, and I told Gabe I didn't want to get wet and he shot me with a hose anyway. And it's kind of cycling all through these, I mean these stressors. And it's kind of it's easy to laugh and think, you know, but at her age and stage, those, those are her temptations. These are her temptations, you know, the temptations to be angry, the t- all these temptations. Every age and stage has them. And probably when she was 15, she could look back on that and say, oh, that five-year-old didn't know anything about stress. Let me tell you about stress. You want to talk about stress, you come into our middle school cafeteria and have to sit by Becky who, and so-and-so. <laughs> and then the 25-year-old, you know, would look, well, you think that was bad, well, let me. And then, of course, the 45-year-old would say, oh, you think it's bad when you're 25 and you have these little kids, wait till they're teenagers. And then the 60-year-old will say, well, you think that's bad? Well, heard J.I. Packer recently, who he's about 93 now. He was joking. He's losing his sight, losing most of his uh, ability to think and kind of functionality. And he kind of joked and said, getting old is not for the faint of heart. And I remember sitting with uh, a man in one of our churches, and he'd, he'd served in World War II behind the lines in Germany. And asking, what's well, one of, the, some of the, the, the hardest things he's ever done in life? Is the hardest thing I've ever done in life is attend the funeral of nearly every person I love. And so you think every age, so whether you're five, you're, you've got stressors in your day. And whether you're 95, you've got stressors and every age and stage has them in between. And you will not be able to fight well unless you can clearly identify them and name them. But also, there's just unique, there's unique temptations because where we live, just our current cultural and then uh, just where we live. I mean, you think about what is the, what's the tagline of our city? Think Orlando. What's Orlando's tagline? It's the city beautiful. I mean, you can look around. We're in a beautiful city surrounded by beautiful people. What type of temptations do you think that can cause and generate I mean, maybe it's just I'm heightened to this because I'm the father of two young girls. What type of image of, of beauty are they going to be plunged in? One of the primary temptations we all have to fight is a real conception of what real beauty really is. In order, how can I help them understand that real beauty has a whole lot less to do with your gene size and has a lot more to do with the size of your heart and your compassion and your generosity? But we're in a world where that's a, that's a real temptation. Or you think about just our current culture. I think one of the dominant features of our current culture is this low-lying, ambient, just anxiety. Just anxiety in a culture. You know, we live in a culture of constant self-creation. And that puts tremendous pressure to perform and achieve and succeed. And then just the reality of our digital world creates certain temptations. Listen to a fabulous book this week called Indistractable. And it was by uh, Nair Eyal. And he also wrote the book called Hooked, which is this orange book that's kind of known as the Silicon Valley Bible. And the point of Hooked is how to create products that are compulsively addictive. And then now he's writing this book Indistractable to try and help you fight the products that his first book created. Maybe that's a beautiful business model. I will create problems and then create the solution. I don't know. Maybe he's he's more brilliant. than. But every single time you flip open your phone or open your computer, you need to know I'm sitting down. There's certain temptations I'm about to have to fight. And you won't be able to fight well unless you can name them. And then you think about your specific vocations, whether you're a homemaker, you're in sales, you're a doctor, you're a teacher. All of those will have unique temptations. And it's really good to get around other Christians in those environments who can help you fight those temptations. Your family culture, your background will have unique temptations. And we have to learn how to name them so we can fight them. But then the next thing is you have to move to a place and look at verse 6 because 6 is the turn. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, I was trying to figure out how to encompass all of these things of you. You trust him, you thank him, and you become joyful. So the word I picked out is you, you delight, delight. But notice what happens. The whole goal of the, the whole way you're going to fight temptation well is you have to figure out how I can, in essence, live in verse 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield, In him my heart trusts and I'm helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks. Now this turn from crying out to help, naming your temptations, and then experiencing the joy and thankfulness, sometimes that can take a long time. But the goal, kind of like the OODA loop, in normal life, if you can figure out how to get that, that wheel spinning, you'll really know how to fight well. Because the two keys here is that the Lord, in the midst of the battle, the Lord is these two things. He's my strength and he's my shield. He's my strength, so I keep going. I've got to keep moving. Can't stop. Got to keep going. And he's my strength and then he's my shield. As I'm going, I'm protected. And the two things I find so fascinating, what, what fuels the strength is his joy. It's joy that is the strength. Joy keeps you going, and then thankfulness is the shield to protect you. So we seek, we find, and we rejoice in His strength that He provides. You know, just like every stage has its unique temptations, every stage has its unique joys. And part of the ability to fight well is you learn to name them. The Lord is our shield. The joy is the strength, gratitude is the shield. You know, I'm intrigued, you know, one of my, a couple of weeks ago in the kids' ministry, we were doing the story about David, about how David showed um, kindness to his enemies. So it's when Saul was pursuing him, and Saul, uh, in essence, was acting unjustly and wickedly towards David. David had his chance to strike him back, and he didn't. And so it's kind of this remarkable story of uh, reserve and, and, and kind of courage uh, and turning the other cheek. But what's so fascinating is that the next story in 1 Samuel, uh, so you can, you can kind of have a skewed image of David, like, oh, what this amazing person who could do this kind of thing. Uh, but then the next story, um, God actually protects him from his own impulsiveness, which I love because it shows how the Lord can be our shield. Sometimes what he has to shield us from is, the, uh, is from ourselves, Because in the next story with Abigail and Nabal, uh, Nabal also offends David, does some, uh, in essence, is rude and slaps him on the cheek, and and David doesn't turn the other cheek. He rises up and says, oh, right, let's go. It's on. Strap on the weapons for war. And then Abigail comes to uh, cool everything down, and it says the Lord protected David. He was his shield. He kept him from the actions of his own impulsiveness. And so he could see the Lord is our shield. He protects us from things out here. He also sometimes protects us from, from us. But joy is the strength, and then gratitude is the shield. Why do you think, something I've been thinking about a lot lately is just the power of thankfulness. Why do you think thankfulness is so powerful? In many ways, so if the shield doesn't help you, maybe you need like the force field, if that image is, rings truer to you than the force field. But thankfulness is like this force field that can protect you from almost all of the temptations that the e- evil one will throw in your life. You know, it's interesting, before, you know, thankfulness seems like just such a simple thing, and yet it's so profound and so powerful. I'm always struck in Romans 1 where Paul kind of unpacks this cascade of wickedness that's poured into the world. And at the very beginning, it's like the avalanche began because they refused to honor God and give him thanks. And then it started this cascade of just brokenness. And so the real question is, how can we really become? If you want to be able to fight well, you have to fight for delight. And actually, I stole that phrase from Cynthia. That's one of her most common mantras that she uses in our home is we're going to fight for delight. Delight in marriage, delight in motherhood. And in marriage, sometimes it's, it's a real fight. But we're, we are going to fight. And we are going to fight for our joy. And thankfulness is kind of this thing that can help protect you so you can really maintain, um, maintain your joy. But notice in verse 7, and with my song, notice I give thanks to him, You know, often we think in the context of thankfulness as we're thankful for. I'm thankful for. But here, it's almost as if David's letting you know before you can thankful, be thankful for, you have to be thankful to. So we thank God, no, not so much because of the gifts. Or before we can be thankful for things, we have to be thankful to him. In one sense, thankfulness is giving credit where credit's due, and all credit is, is due him. So one of the most important things that if you're going to grow, if you're going to be able to uh, fight well is to develop the habit of thankfulness. So think for a moment. This would be a great question to kind of think through in your growth groups or maybe at lunch this afternoon or get somebody in your life and, uh, you know, a couple questions you could think through. All right. What are the unique temptations that we fight in this stage and season we're in? And then what are the unique joys that we can be thankful for? Or what's ways I can generate more gratitude? you know maybe having something as simple as like a gratitude journal that you just commit to writing you know one sentence every day, or maybe you want to time block it and uh, we've been experimenting with trying to do Thursdays for Thursdays or for thankfulness Thankful Thursdays so trying to intentionally be more thankful on Thursday and the real challenge is how can we I mean, you've all experienced what it's like in like a work setting or in a in a social setting where one negative person just really ruins the whole social dynamic. Uh, They just kind of bring a certain toxicity to the to the group. And uh, we know how one negative person can do that. But I wonder, is it possible for one positive person to have the opposite effect? Because like one person who's just relentlessly thankful have the very opposite effect. But here the key is how can we become, get your heart to a place where it trusts, it exalts, and it thanks. You find delight. And then notice the fourth thing. Notice what David does. Then he then gives out the help he's received. So he gives. The Lord is the strength of his people. He's the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. He then begins to intercede for others. The help he's received, he tries to give. He wants to seek out others who need the same type of help that he has received. See, for David, it was during his dark times that he learned who he really was, who God really was, It was in the dark times that he cried out for help, the Lord heard his cry, the Lord healed him, the Lord helped him, the Lord held him, and then after he received that, God, God doesn't just do that just for him, he does it so now he can then give, that's why Paul says we comfort others with the same comfort we received, that's the cycle, we go to him and cry out for help, he pours out his grace upon us, then we become a conduit so we give it out to others. But one of the things, that I noticed the ultimate thing here in verse 9. Oh, save your people. Bless your heritage. Be their shepherd. Remind them whose they are. Because in the midst of the battle, the most important thing is not to fixate and focus really on the enemy. But the most important thing is to remember whose you are. Not just who you are. And now David knows that the Lord will shepherd him and carry him. And he wants other people to know that as well. He wants them to experience that. And then look at verse 9. I think it's interesting. He says, be their shepherd. Other people who are in this difficult fight, they're in the battle. They're in the midst of crying out to you for help. What do they need to know? They need to know you're the shepherd. And then, you know, there's a lot of things that the shepherd can, does. Shepherd feeds. Shepherd leads. the Shepherd protects. But notice in verse 9, what's the one thing that David wants them to know that the shepherd does? He carries. He'll carry you. He's carried me, and I want you to have a heart that can trust and exalt in him. Don't fight him as he's carrying you. He will carry you. So you think about it for a moment. What situation does the sheep need to be in where they have to have the shepherd carry them? Well, it could be because they're lost, and they don't know their way back. They need the shepherd to come get them and carry them back home. Or it could be because they're so weary they can't travel anymore. Maybe they're in the desert and the shepherd knows, you know, we can't stay here. You've got to keep going. But they can't. They're too weary. They're too weak. So he picks them up and he carries them. Or maybe they've been wounded. Maybe their leg is fractured and they're wounded and they can't take another step. So he comes and he carries them. You know, you look at this, this really is kind of like the OODA loop for our own battles. So which might you be this morning? Maybe you come here and you find yourself and you feel lost, aimless. Cry out to the shepherd so he can carry you home. Or maybe you're weary and weak. Cry out to him, wounded. Cry out to him. You know, there's a couple hints here because one, one of the interesting things, all right, if this is the process these things what can fuel it where does the power come from and david gives us some pretty powerful hints about where we go so we can experience the lord as our shepherd the first is in verse 2 where he looks to the altar see his his eyes get fixed on the altar that's where he's going to look for his hope and of course what's the altar i mean he didn't understand what the altar was fully but he knows that's where i need to look It's what he sees at the altar will fuel his hopes for the shepherd. And what's the altar? It's the place of atonement, the mercy seat. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was laid. And once a year, um, after all the regulations of the the temple get established, the high priest is going to cover it with blood. And somehow he knows that the blood on the altar provides both atonement for me and access to the Father. So for us, how do we look to the sanctuary? Our sanctuary is the cross. Paul says in Romans 3 that that altar, the mercy seat, is Jesus, and we look to the cross. And there we see him. He's the final sacrifice that atones for our sins and makes a way so we can come in. We see him dying for our sins, and we can come through. You know, first chapter 28 is in this whole cycle of psalms that celebrate the Lord as our shepherd. And you probably know the first one that gets the songs going, Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me. He he leads me by still waters. But the beautiful thing about Psalm 23 is, you know what Psalm comes before Psalm 23? It's not a trick question. It's Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is the song of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And David doesn't know this fully, but what we get to see is that Jesus fully entered into the full experience of Psalm 22. So you and I can enter into the full experience of Psalm 23. So it's actually on the cross, we can cry out to him uh, for our help because he made a way by the cross. And then we can name all of our enemies and not be afraid because on the cross he defeated all of them. And then, what keeps the fuel going is that it's not just fueled by the cross; it's also fueled by the resurrection. Now, there's an interesting, beautiful ambiguity in verse seven, where the SV says, "My heart exalts; it rejoices; it celebrates." But the very first translation of the Hebrew text is the Septuagint, and in the Septuagint, you know you, this, this word you could translate one you could translate it as joy, celebration, exaltation. Or you could translate it as reviving, renewing. And what's interesting, the Greek Orthodox Church, they sing this psalm every single Sunday. And you ask them why, they'll say, well, it's because Christians have been doing it since the resurrection. Because this is a resurrection psalm. They say, look, verse 7, who is it? So this is actually about one David's greater son. Because David's greater son on the cross was actually plunged into the pit of darkness. And then he, the Lord, revived him and he heard the cry and is a saving refuge of his anointed. So before it can be true for us, it's actually true through him. And so it's the resurrection that empowers all of these things. So what's our hope? That we can fight well and fight temptation. We look to the cross and we're powered by the resurrection.